0: Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco For more information about these classes, or about Christchurch in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. My name is Jason, and sorry couldn't have with you guys the first week. You had to have a pinch hitter and Mark Christian. Wow, sorry about that. I'm sure he just laid an egg. <laughs> He's amazing. Love that guy just came out of a, a meeting with him, which was lots of fun, as we're looking at, uh, he's on our board at Christ to and we're looking at trying to grow globally, and he's helping us with that, so, it's good, but I'm glad to be here tonight, um, I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about this, if uh, some of you guys were in the class last time, I just love teaching the Bible, and so, we'll find time for those applications, but more than anything else, I uh, I love just digging in the Word, and finding these little nuggets, and these little, like, just things ahead, and I'm like, what? And, and I found, like, in this text we're going to look at tonight, I found two things that just made my mind go, wait, 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 what is that? And I love those moments. And so, unapologetically, I'm probably pretty weak on the application side, and probably more on, like, let's just eat some content and see what we find. And uh, and so we're going to dive into the at <coughs> Great book. Great, great book. Uh, they asked me if I wanted to teach again. They're like, yeah, I was like, what do you want to teach? I was like, uh, I don't know. We're just not judges. How about first hand? We'll just keep going. And so it literally was that much thought put into it. I love the Old Testament uh, because I I just love a good story. And so one of these we're always doing here as part of our class, just a little bit of fun, is I'll always introduce some some sort of a question, and and again, it's just they're always meant to be fun. They're never meant to put you on the spot or make you feel bad. Uh, But tonight's question is appropriate. I'm going to ask two questions. Uh, that you can take some time to think about. Um, but again, don't make more than what you need to. It's meant to be light, okay? First question you can answer at your table What's the most extravagant gift you've ever given? For me, I'll give you an example. It was a necklace. It was, and I know this sounds dumb, I was in high school and I gave this girl a necklace that cost me $60 and we broke up the next day. Most extravagant I knew I was going to break up with her. I was trying to buy peace, she had no idea. Most extravagant gift I've ever given. As high school sophomore, I had no money to my name. And I scrounged up 60 bucks from like birthday, Christmas money, everything. Gave this girl a $60 necklace and then broke up with her. And it was like, I knew it was going to break up, but I didn't want to look like a complete jerk. And so, yeah, that was, that was my most extravagant gift I think I've given to somebody else as a sophomore in high school. So, and then what's the most extravagant gift that you've ever received? And, uh, you know, what, what, what would that be? Uh, and so just have fun with that. Most extravagant gift you think you could remember giving. And it doesn't have to be, it can be way back. You can talk about when you were a little kid. And then, just for kicks, what's an extravagant gift that you received? All right, let's do it. Go. The extravagant gift that I ever received is uh, when I was, uh, oh, my wife and I just got married. I mean, I'll be honest, we're all adults here. The most extravagant gift I ever got was, yeah, my honeymoon night, the fact that I'd waited for my wife away waited me at that moment, that was like, that's the best gift I ever got. We're not going to go there. That's being recorded, by the way. Uh, we're going to sweat there. Beyond that, an extravagant gift I got was, uh, at one point, my dad came up, my stepdad came up. He goes to church here, and uh, he did a deal with us. Where he said, I'm gonna, he was, I mean, at that point, you know, like he was a a wealthy man, he just came up and said, I wanna help you guys get started. And what he told me was, he said, I will give you $3,000 toward the purchase of your first house. And uh, and, and for us, at that point in our young marriage, he made one contingency in that he had to approve the house we bought. That was the only contingency. And uh, and man, from that purchase, I mean, we made, from the time we, Bought that house, just purchase price to sales price, let alone what we paid down. Just we bought it for this, we sold it for this, $25,000 we made on that house. And, and I showed him like eight houses every time. I was like, nope, 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 not that one, nope. And I showed him, he said, he came in Tulsa in a, a little of the time. He's like, get anything else you can show me? Like I got I got one other house but I hate it. He's like, I wanna see it. I hated that <laughs> house. I hated it. And everything in me. Took him and showed this house and, this is the one. I hate it the whole time I live there. <laughs> I mean we fixed it up, we had almost everything to do. And uh, but it's crazy because in our life, we made 25 grand just in sales, purchased a sale, and then he helped us buy the next house and uh, we looked around at houses, he said fire your realtor, get rid of her. Nice lady, but we were moving to Amarillo, get rid of her, find somebody else. And we didn't find anybody else. So he says, I'll find you a house. And literally, by 7 a.m. the next morning, if there's no my dad, just my stepdad, just the way he is, he's knocking on a door at 7 a.m. Who doesn't buy a house? It oh, yeah, was in the newspaper, knocked on the door at 7 a.m. on this house. I'm like, I'm sitting in the car, totally embarrassed. We waited till 7 a.m., mind you. We're out in front of the house at 6, and we I got him to wait till 7. 6 59, 7 o'clock, he's knocking on the door, and I'm like, in bed, You knocked on I mean, my door at seven a.m. wanted to talk to me. Of course, it was an older retired couple. They've been up since four. You know, had their, <laughs> their fourth cup of coffee and second breakfast at that point in time. Walk in there, thirty minutes later, we buy that house, and then purchase price and sales price made another twenty five thousand. And so, I was telling you, the most extravagant gift I ever got was one really more than three thousand dollars was his help uh, because we made fifty grand on two houses, and that was like it just it changed our. Our destiny. The next house he helped me with that one purchased the sales price sixty thousand dollars. I'm like that guy. Most extravagant gift we ever received was twenty five, twenty five, and sixty, just on houses he helped us navigate. So yeah, yeah, he he's awesome. That would be it. Uh, tonight is all about an extravagant gift, and it sets to the book of First Samuel, and honestly, it sets up the Gospels. Uh, keep in mind that every story. And I firmly believe this. If you'll look for the thread, every story in this book is driving to Jesus. Always driving to Jesus. And tonight is no different. Um, I, I got to be honest with you. Next week is the one I'm completely geeked out about teaching. Uh, and I kind of told some of you guys a story back in Judge about Fat Eli. We get to teach on that next week. <laughs> tonight is more heartfelt. Uh, but it's also, it, it's brutal. It's got pain. It's got some agony in it. Uh, and it honestly, it has... Uh, a young mom doing something that I couldn't even fathom. And so let's just dive into the book. Uh, keep in mind, read this through the lens of the coming king. Read this through the lens uh, of Jesus and where and what he's going to do. All right, if you remember, and some of you guys may have been with us throughout the book of Judges, there's a refrain that gets used over and over and over in the book of Judges. Anybody know what that refrain is if you, if you took Judges with us? what was it? Yeah, okay, everyone did right in their own eyes. Right before that, there was no king in Israel. We live in the book of Judges. And you kind of got to know where we're coming from. And in fact, you get your Bibles, flip over to the very last verse in the book of Judges. Just go backwards just a little bit. And uh, oh my God. I looked down, I was like, "What?" that's the wrong one. Very last verse. You see um, you see this, this transition happening, verse twenty forty-five of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The springboard goes right into 1 Samuel. And in fact, originally there was no First and Second Samuel. It was just Samuel. And this book has been divided up to make it a little bit more manageable. But it would have been all one book. And so all of a sudden you hear there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as they saw fit. If you would have gone from there right into this book, we know that Samuel probably wrote parts of this book. There's no way he could have written all of it. He was dead there a huge chunk of 1 and Second Samuel. We don't know how much of this he influenced, how much of it he wrote. It's got his name on it, but he didn't write at all. it all. It would have been impossible for Samuel to write everything. But I want you to read it from this standpoint. There was no king in Israel, right? Everyone did as they saw fit. And all of a sudden, you grab the next book in the trilogy, or the next <coughs> book in the series, and you read this opening line for the book of 1 Samuel. i got to flip over there. 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says, There was a certain man... From uh, Rothian. What would you think of if you heard that? I'm thinking right now, he just showed up. Like there's a certain man. Uh, and in fact, that phrase is unique. It's used in Samuel. It's used in Judges as well. Um, sometimes it's, we live in this linear society where we read, uh, what's the first Lord of the Rings book? What is the first one? Fellowship. Uh, Fellowship of the Rings, is that what it is? It goes from Fellowship of the Ring, then it goes to uh, two, two, towers. two Towers. And there's this, always this progression. You know, it's it's like, well, we go from this book. Some of you guys may know Harry Potter better. And it goes from this book, Harry Potter, this book, to this book. Or if you're a reader, you've got your favorite series. You cannot read the first several chapters of of uh, 1 Samuel and not understand that they overlap with Judges. Okay? Samson would have been just a little bit older than Samuel. These guys live at the same time. The first chapters we're about to read, they happen clear back in Judges. The battle we're going to read about next week It's the battle that Samson is seeing back in Judges. All these things, they overlap, okay? They're happening at the same time. And that's important. So here we go. It says, There was a certain man, he says, A Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu. And we can keep going through all these names. They are important, but I'm not going to get into them. Um, So he had two wives. Before we go into that, I want to talk about, there's a problem in here, if you understood this text. Um, This guy, Elkanah, He's going to be a key figure here in a minute. And, and I want to throw this out, not because it's got some some major spiritual implications, just because I thought, hmm, I wonder why. And I ask that question a lot when I read text. It mentions that, it goes through, it mentions where this guy's from. And I'm like, okay, so why does the writer mention that? Why does he talk about where he's from? The reason why I mentions where he's from is that if you read later on in 2 Samuel, or actually 2 Chronicles, you'll realize that this guy's a Levite. And if you understood, back then... You live with your tribe. The Benjamites are supposed to be together. You know, that. you know, whoever it was, they were supposed to be with their tribe. It was, you know, it and, and his tribe was a, was a tribe of Levi. They didn't have a dedicated like, plot of land. Okay? So you get 12 tribes, the tribes all get divided in the promised land. Here's your section. Benjamin's got their sections. Gad's got their section. You know, with all these different you know, sections of land that these guys are given. This guy's not living with his people automatically. He's a Levite. We find that in 2 Chronicles, and he's not living with the Levites. So automatically, there's an issue of obedience in this guy. Like, okay, why, why are you not where you're supposed to be? He's out of place. And if you're re- we don't know that. It doesn't make any sense to us. We read it like, us in the middle country, and who cares where he's from? But if you're a good Jewish guy reading this back in this day, you're like, whoa, 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 hey. What's that dude look like? He's the same guy they talk about in the Chronicles. chronicle. He's not supposed to be living there. Like, he's out of place. He's not where he should be. And I think that's going to factor into understanding a little bit about Samuel's dad to come up. It says, he had two wives. All right, let's get into that. Somebody real quick, look up Genesis 2.24 for me. Actually, read that at your table. Somebody look it up and read it at your table. We're going to deal with an issue real quick. 2.24. So, read that at your table. We've all heard this at a wedding. Somebody read it out loud at your table. Boy. You guys want to read, read it out loud at every table? Okay, how many weddings have we heard that at? Lots of weddings. Here's where we get into problems with the Old Testament sometimes. Is we hear about these guys like Abraham having multiple wives. We read this saying about, about this guy Elkanah having multiple wives. And all of a sudden, we can get in our minds real quick that, well, that must have been okay back then. wasn't. It wasn't it okay back then. It's not okay now. It's not the way it was supposed to be played out. Very clearly is that it, it talks about his relationship with his wife. Singular. From the very beginning of Genesis, when God established what that covenant home was going to look like, established what the family was going to look like, now, Abraham should not you know, have taken somebody in addition to Sarah. He shouldn't have done that. And in this case, this guy shouldn't have taken another wife. And I don't want to make it look like because it's mentioned in the Bible that, oh, then it must have been okay. No, it wasn't okay. It wasn't a part of God's covenant plan. It wasn't what he established. It wasn't what he wanted. Um, but at the same time, God's all about restoring people who do dumb things. And we are all living... Proof of that. The other thing I love, and we've talked about this in Judges, is that if I'm writing my family story, I'm only writing the good stuff. You know what I mean? I'm not writing the garbage. And I love this about God that He lets even the disobedient things get written out there. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. That's fantastic that He flat out points out. And so when He talks about this guy's two wives, it's not like. Now, the Lord knew that this happened, and so at times He said, Hey, if you do this or if you do this, the only time that he would allow another wife to be taken in in, in Levitical code is if a man's wife or his brother's wife or someone had died. And he would say, you can bring that person into your home. You've got to understand the context there. We're talking starvation. We're talking about a woman. At that point, it's not like today. Her ability to provide for her own children, provide sustenance for family. That's not why this guy takes a wife, and you're about to find out why he takes her. Um, Let's go to this. It says, he had two wives. One was called Hannah. Hannah means favor. Um, I don't know how it plays out, but I know that, I don't know if that's just his nickname for her. I don't know if that's the name he gives her or if that's the name she's got, but she's called Hannah, which means favor. And then watch this. And the other, Panaya. You know what that name means? Fruitful. Alright, that name is fruitful. And it's going to be interesting. It says, Panaya had children, but Hannah had none. So, in this home, you got Tension between these women. You get a woman that that cannot have children, and she's favored, called the favorite. and then you've got the one who can have children, and she's called fruitful. And you can imagine the tension. Now, ladies, let's get into this real quick. Guys, let's get into it. Uh, In this day and age, to not be able to have a child, uh, it comes with stigmas even today, no doubt. No doubt in society that that women that struggle in that area, it, that is, a deep, can be a very deep, deep wound. Uh, and I'm not trying to compare a wound then to a wound now. But at this point in time, if you were unable to produce children, you didn't have somebody who could help grow crops. You didn't help somebody who could, you weren't able to contribute to having somebody who could take care of livestock. You weren't able to contribute to, I mean, part of the reason my families were so big, even our own society, if you go back 50 to 100 years, was the hands that could help out. And here this woman is, and all she's doing is living in the house, doing kind of doing her thing, but she's not able to contribute to the greater society. And even worse than that, I want to get into this. I got to find this text because I can't remember where it's at. What even makes it even worse that, for, for that is is that she's not actually even going to feel like she she's really contributing to the greater cause of what God's trying to do. Um, where did I find this out? Somebody look, read um, Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. Let's go there. Let me tell you why this hurts so bad. Genesis 3. We'll get a couple of verses here. Um, Genesis 3, verse 15. It says, after the fall of man, it states says, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Talk to me. is you're Hannah, and God's given this great provision of what is to come. What's the thing you have to have in order to be a part of that promise? Huh? Children. So it's not just that she can't produce kids for her husband, to have hands that can care for the farm, or hands that can you know, bring in the crops, care for the animals, all of that. Look at Hannah. Look at it from her perspective. If she can't have a child, look at the text again. Break down this in your own mind. It says, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Satan, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What it really means is that when she can't have a kid, she's cut off from God's promise. That a woman's offspring is going to be part of what brings the promise, brings the Savior. And if all of a sudden her womb is dead, she's cut off from this great promise she's heard about. Does that make sense? You trekking with me? She's out. I can't have any children. That means means the offspring mentioned in Genesis there not going to happen. That's a deep wound for her. Also, look over Genesis twenty-two. Look at another one, another an interesting text to look at to kind of get her perspective. I thought this was kind of cool when I found this twenty-two, 17 seventeenth or eighteen. He says, "I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed." Because you have obeyed me. Let's talk about it for a second. If you're Hannah, and you've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to have kids, and it just won't happen for you, and all you've heard is a blessing that's going to be, be poured out, the nations, the cities, the, the coming king is going to come to her offspring, and here you are looking around, and you're one of the few, not the only, you're one of the few women here that can't produce. How, how deep that wound would have been for and we understand as, as a woman and a man today when they can't have children. i get friends that are going through that right now how painful that is. I want you to also look at it at the spiritual pain that Hannah would have felt as if I've now been separated from God's plan. Does that make sense? She's out of God's plan. She's no longer a part. She's not even invited to be a part of and, and I think it's, uh, it's another, another type of wound. I don't want to say it's worse wound, deeper wound, Different. I'd say it's different, and I want you to see that that it's it's more than just well I can have kids so you know perhaps we'll consider you know fertility or perhaps we'll consider adoption. All of that means she feels a little different pain and that she now she feels cut off the promise. Follow me. I don't make too much of it, but I thought it was kind of cool. I was like, ooh, that hurts. I'd never noticed that before. All right, let's get back to first name. It says year after year, so this is going on for a long time. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Uh, we're going to talk about that word Lord Almighty here in a second. It says, um, "Were Hophni and Phinehas and two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord." We're going to talk about these chumps here in a little bit. Those two guys are flat out losers, and we'll get into their chump, messed up, jacked up story later on. We'll hit that next week. They are absolute morons uh, in terms of how they how they lead. In yeah. I can't wait to tell you how big of idiots they were next week. Um, he says, When the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Oh, oldie folks, there's so much there. Let's just start breaking this down. All right. First of all, um, portions are going to be... Her ability to sacrifice, it's her ability to eat. It's the tension that's going on as Elkanah begins divvying up because it goes through it. It says, um, "When the day came for Elkanah's sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Paniah and to all of her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, give a double portion." So he's handing all this stuff out, and here's the tension: if you're Paniah and you're actually producing the children that he wants. And you're, you know, you've got your little rugrats lined up, you know, tallest to shortest, and maybe there's a dozen of them sitting there. And he's walking out, giving out all the things you're going to sacrifice and everything you're going to do. And then he comes down to Hannah, and you've gotten one. All your kids have gotten one. There's a little bit of you like, oh, cute we little we've, we've accumulated. I don't know how many kids you had. We don't know, but I'll make it the number 12 just for fun. We've gotten 13 portions here. That's awesome. One for each of us. And look at you, little Hannah. And then all of a sudden he walks up to Hannah, and he goes, let me give you two. Oh, can you imagine the tension? And the fact that he says he loved her, like, you don't think that that doesn't go home with them. Like, Pani is not aware that every time that Elkanah's sleeping with her, he might be thinking of Hannah. Or that every time another you know, story comes through, that, you know, here Panaya, the fruitful one's having another baby, that Elkanah's not going, oh, I wish it was Hannah. I mean, there, there is no joy in this home right now. You've got two women that you're about to see cannot get along and, and are mistreating one another. Well, one's being mistreated. You've got Elkanah playing favorites. First of all, he's taking two wives. Now he's, t- now he's playing favorites. And I can't even imagine. I mean, you've got to think about it from Panaya. If you're Panaya's child in that home, imagine the kind of feel you're getting about the other woman in the house. Imagine the tension that's getting. And I want to just create this like it's a movie right now. You know, imagine that you're, you're Panaya's third kid. You know, and every time you sit down to eat, you look across, and all the little jabs that Hannah hears all day long. She hears it from Panaya. She feels it every time she looks in her husband's eyes. And here she is over here, and all these rugrats, they're making their little comments. They're smarting off. You know, it's just this house is a jacked up house. It's tense. And it's more than just. It's more than just reading the story. You've got to crawl inside of a little bit. You've got to be there in the morning when they wake up for breakfast and Hannah walks in the room and little undercut comments, little jokes here and there. You've you got to feel a little bit of the story because it's going to make a lot more sense when you hear Hannah's prayer coming up. Um, an interesting fact you've got to look at is it says that the Lord closed her womb. That's fascinating. don't quite know what to do with that in the midst of pain that we experience in life. Um, there are times where I would be the first one to jump on board to say, man, I do not believe that the pain you're going through is from God. I believe it's part of living in a fallen world. And we, I mean, I've said it. We live on this side of Genesis 3, and what you're going through in your life, man, that's not from God it's because of the evil that coming to into this world through sin, and we're all experiencing it. we've all, whether as a preacher or you all have felt or you've talked about that or you've thought that, and we've, we project it off pain as if, man, that's not from God. And, and God wouldn't do that to you. And in this moment, the scripture is very clear, and I think we just need to rest in it for a second. And don't justify it, don't explain it away, and let it sit. The Lord closed your will. And uh, I, I think of that scripture in James, he says, consider here, jewel my brothers, who face trials in many different times, because the test of your faith will perseverance, perseverance will finish its work, so you can be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Um... There are times when God allows, allows trials to come our way. And this is a painful trial for her. This is painful. And God's allowing it to happen. That's hard. It's a hard thing to swallow. Um, let's keep going. I don't have there's no easy answer for that. There is. Tell me. Um, here we go. It says, and because the Lord had closed her room, her her rival kept provoking her. That is meant like continue She just kept provoking her, trying to irritate her. I don't know. Let's talk about the other side of it. Somebody else did this. Remember who it was? Who else had two wives? Abraham. Abraham. And, uh, and Sarah, and then I just forgot her name. Her, uh... Hagar. Yes. Hagar, yeah. And you know what Sarah did to her? Sarah treats her poorly. Sarah is... Cruel to her. So cruel to her that ultimately it drives her out of the house. And, and it is not a pretty thing that Sarah does to this. I mean, Sarah's the one who went to Abraham and says, why don't you sleep with my maiden over here? Why don't you sleep with my assistant? So Abraham's like, well, you can't have kids. You're getting old. Okay, I'll do that. And then you watch the way that Sarah treats her. It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. The way Ishmael gets treated, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. And I would imagine at some point... Maybe not. Maybe ultimately, she's just hoping she'll just leave. That she, if she's cruel enough to you, man, I've been in a job like that before, um, where they, feel like they just treat you bad enough long enough, you're finally just give up. Unfortunately, I'm incredibly persistent. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship like, like that. We've been in a situation where somebody just created you. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna speak as bluntly as I could. They've treated you like crap long enough, just hoping you'd give up, hoping you'd walk away. When it says that that her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. I mean, you've got a full-on case of bullying here. This poor Hannah lady is getting thumped. She's got Panaya, She's got her own husband's eyes that he loves her. He's disappointed in what she can't produce. We don't really know. We don't know what's going on. We know panaya is just thumping her, man, every day. She gets up. It's the undercut. It's a little uncut comment. It's the things your kids are saying. Then you know the rest of those kids can see the way the night is her. Everybody knows. And you know what? Once one person starts ganging up on somebody, it almost feels like everybody does. Sometimes it happens in a house. Happens in my house at times. All of a sudden, I'll, I'll, I'll look around, and all three of my kids are all picking on one. And I'm like, what in the world? How did we get here? And, and they're all just like, now Levi is a target, or Sydney's a target, or Silas is a target, and here uh, Hannah is the target. And it is not a pretty place. Moving on. Yeah. So did they get married at the same time? Probably not. Or he married to Hannah and then... Commentators think that he's probably married to Hannah. She's not having children. And so he goes and gets fruitful. And then, why can't Hannah leave? Like, I'd be out of there. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Why can't she just... You've got issues like the ability to own land. you get issues like, how are you going to get a... You can't just go get a job. Um, it's all an agrarian-based society. And if you can't have land and you don't have income, her only option is just going homeless. You know? She could try to, to go for a divorce or something like that, but she's got nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. You know, we live in a in a beautiful world with our freedom. We've got amazing ability to walk away and be independent. She's stuck. This is her husband. Biblically speaking, she can't divorce him unless he's done something wrong. You know, she he can't has. Well, but it was a pretty common practice for him to have more than one wife. It was a common practice. She's stuck. She's just, and man, how many times have we seen that situation of a abused woman? And there's no doubt Elkanah does love her. He does love her. Maybe she doesn't want to leave him. Maybe she does love him back. And it's just a mess. And, and so I would encourage him, make it as messy as it is. Be mad at her for not leaving. Be mad at her for not fighting for herself. Yeah. You know, be mad at Panaya for what she's doing to her. Be mad at Elkanah. I mean, I, I love when you guys crawl in the text and feel the emotion of it. So the fact it's got you irritated, I love that. All right. <coughs> it says, um, I lost but verse seven. It says, when on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord her rival, pro- and this, this is interesting. It's when they go to worship. Even then, whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her. Till she wept and would not eat. I mean, this isn't just happening at home. This is when they make the journey to go to the temple. Here she is again, even at the temple, just digging at her until this lady hurts so bad that she's literally sobbing, so hurt she can't eat. And I don't know what she's saying, but Panai is one mean lady. She's just mean. And you can call her whatever you want. I'll just say she's mean. Um, Elk and her husband would say to her, Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Okay, Elkanah, you're clueless. <laughs> why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I need more to eat than ten sons? And that's the reason why I like to play around that she had twelve. Is that I'm almost like, well, maybe you know, she had ten sons and two daughters. So, I don't know. It says she had sons and daughters. It says, one day when they finished eating and drinking Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. We're going to talk about why this guy's sitting later on, but... That's another issue. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty. First time that phrase is used in Scripture. All right, let me back up here for a second. And I talked about this a few, several months ago. I had a chance to preach uh, on the main services. Let me unpack this just a little bit. You're reading O Lord Almighty. You've got to keep in mind, this was not written in English. Okay? Bible in, in Hebrew and Aramaic. When it's written on the Lord Almighty, unfortunately, we miss the robust nature of what's happening. There's a name for God that's the first time it's ever used in Scripture. It's going to be used about 100, 200, 300 times later on, but this is the first time. Hannah calls God by a name that he's, he's really never been called by. And it's a name that's going to come back up later on. And it's going to come up in a way that I'm going to get all fired up, jump up and down, celebrate this I get completely geeked out about this name uh, when David defeats uh, Goliath. But this name will not, it means Jehovah Sabaoth. You know what Jehovah Sabaoth means? All right, let's back up for a second. Um, we don't know God's name. And then you're like, what? We don't know God's name. We, we don't know the exact name he goes by. All we have is YHWH. Um, we, a, it's called the Tetragram Tana. What it was is they viewed the name of God so holy and so sacred they would never write it all down so they would just write down the letters Y-H-W-H. They didn't feel worthy to write all of it. And so they wouldn't. Like the official, like Jehovah Elohim, the official name, they wouldn't write that down. And you can Google it or on Tetragrammatron. It's a really fascinating topic if you want to study it. It's really pretty cool. In fact, if they wrote his official name, they would literally bathe themselves, change their clothes a whole bit. Even if they wrote just the generic term Lord, they would wipe the pen down. And Sometimes we approach the name of God... So lethargically, I think I think sometimes in our desire to dissolve our distance between us and God, we try to domesticate the Almighty. And that's why we make t-shirts and say, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> it's, it's why we'll do bobblehead Jesus. It's why we can literally say, Jesus Christ, and you don't know if I'm cussing or praising. Like we've gotten so comfortable with the fact that we even get to utter his name. And, and lost how special that one is. So God's got different names that he calls himself. He'll call himself Jehovah Mikadishkin, um, meaning that he's the one that sanctifies you. Jehovah Shalom means the Lord of peace. peace. Yeah, the Lord of peace. He'll call himself Jehovah Roy, saying, I'm the God who is your shepherd. He'll call himself Jehovah Rapha, I'm the God who heals you. And on this one, she calls Him something, Jehovah Sabaoth. It means he's a God of hosts. And what, what she realizes in this prayer is, I'm not alone. Uh, and I know that He is a God of armies. He is a God of angels. He is a God of, of amazing things. And she's got this view, this grand view of God that goes beyond God just on a throne. But she sees the empire that He controls, the armies that He controls, the, the forces of, of angels that are underneath His control. And she cries out to that God and says, Can you help me? Um, let's keep reading. O Lord Almighty, Jehovah Sabaoth, if you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. I find that she asks for a son. We'll keep. I think that ties back to the stuff we read in Genesis. I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. All right. Who's his contemporary? Samson. Sounds a whole lot like Samson does. These boys both grow a lot of long hair. That's what that means. Okay? Um, how she's praying, we're going to get into this here in just a second. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Alright. This would have been a really, really interesting way to pray. We don't look at it um, the same way that Eli might have. I'm going to give you some scriptures to look at, and I want to, like if you see somebody, that's not an alarming thing for you. If you see somebody praying, just praying that their mouth is moving you can't quite hear them. You know, we do that all the time, don't we? You know, we sit down at Chick-fil-A and we bow our head. You know, Whether your lips move or not, that's a pretty common thing. That would have been a little bit weird for Eli to see. Look at these scriptures real quick. Um, at your table, I want one person to take Psalm 3-4. Somebody got that at your table? Call it out. Say, I yeah, got it. Got it? I need somebody to take Psalm 4-1. Who's got that one? Call it out. Okay? Somebody taking 6, nine. Somebody take that one? Okay, Call them out. We'll just start with those. All right. Go ahead to your tables. read, read through those real quick. We're going to look at one other one on Add that I just thought of. Look at Daniel chapter 6, 10 11. Somebody take that one. Add Daniel 6, 10 to 11. Somebody read that one. And look for common denominator here. things we're looking at is that it's a pretty typical thing to pray out loud. And they would stand before the Lord and pray. They would call out to the Lord in prayer. You know, it's one of the things that Jesus, when you pray, go to your closet in secret. This concept of her sitting there, just kind of mumbling those words quietly is, is not a common thing that she would have done in public. And with Levi, when he, when Eli walks up, his, his response to that, you know, if you can see it where he says, uh, uh, Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Even the fact that the writer would call that out means that, oh, if you're reading that, if we heard that today, you would think, oh, what's the big deal with that? It was just weird, a little bit weird back then. It says, Eli thought thought she was drunk. and said there, how long are you going to keep getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Uh, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I want to look at a few verses here. And we're going to talk just a bit about prayer, um, man. Let's, let's start by looking at Hannah's heart, verse ten. Look at that. I want you to—if you want to underline um, these phrases, you don't have to, but I find they—they they are really good places to be in prayer. Um, the one phrase so I'm looking at, in verse ten, is uh, a bitterness of soul. Um, also in verse ten, you can look. I think depends on your translation. Deep anguish. Bitter weeping in verse 10. Find those phrases similar to that in your translation? Look in verse 11. You find the word misery. In verse 15, you find being deeply troubled. In verse 16, you find great anguish and grief. I don't know when the last time was that you've been so deeply hurt that you wept in prayer but you're in good company. You're in great company. And if, if you're experiencing deep anguish and pain, you're in a really good place to pray. And what we know is that God hears those prayers throughout Scripture. And there's no doubt that He hears that prayer with him. I can tell you, man, whether it be trying to adopt my, my who's now my son or being there when my nephew died, I remember being in deep anguish. Man, honestly, I can tell you for me, guys know another story, September 28th, I break my neck in two places, and I'm worried if I'm ever going to walk again. And I can tell you that's the most authentic prayer I've ever prayed in my life. Just begging God. Begging God to help me. Begging God to save me. Begging God just to walk again. It's a, it's a great place to be. I want to state right now, prayer is not a technique we master. And and it's interesting, even even when Jesus tries to teach us to pray, how many times that gets misunderstood to be a formula? I think Jesus showed more a position of our heart. I think if you want to know what prayer is more than anything else, you get what you just pour out your heart to God. Where you stop worrying about how you say it, you stop worrying about the eloquency of your words. I mean for me, that's one of the reasons I can't write my prayers. Personally, I can't do it. Because I start worrying worry about grammatical structure. I start worrying worry about flow. I start, man, that sounds really good. I start admiring my prayers. I'm like, what the crap am I doing? I'm a moron. I'm lost. And usually my best prayers are when I'm just crying out to God. And a uh, moment of absolute confession. Uh, this time, uh, last uh, two weeks ago, I was in Northern Ireland. And I was leading a group of students. And we were, this place called Tollymore Forest. And this is a little humbling as a guy to say this. But I'll just tell you the story. Um, Tullymore Forest is what inspired C.S. Lewis for the Chronicles of Narnia so if you go to Tullymore Forest you're actually you're in what he would have called Narnia and it is gorgeous beyond anything I've, I've really ever experienced and for me, when I go to Tullymore I call it, uh, for me I call it my thin space it's like, there's about I don't know, like a 3 or 4 mile loop and I, I don't know why I don't try to manufacture it I always go in, the phrase I use is I go in with anticipation but no expectation. I don't know if God's going to say anything to me or not. And I don't know why, but nearly every single time I walk that loop, I get to this one section, and God just levels me with something. He just teaches me, speaks to me in ways that are just overwhelming. The last time I was there, I walked it twice, I walked through and I came through and said, God, I'm here with, you know, anticipation, anticipation but no expectation. I walk through, bye right, Lord, thank you. Came through, we were still up, and we went taller more again on that trail. Walked through. Man, Lord, coming through here. I come with, with an anticipation, anticipation, no expectation. You want to reveal something to me? Man, I just feel like God said, you, you he loved me. And I just kept on walking. Third time, I'm going through by myself. And kind of the same attitude. That's not what God's going to do. And it always happens at the same place. I cleared that place, and literally, it was no further than from here to that wall behind me, where God always breaks me. And all of a sudden, I felt the Holy Spirit telling me to pray. And the only words that I could mutter were, were two words. I said it every step. I said, thank you. I took another step slowly. I felt the rocks on my feet. I said, I slipped down and said, thank you. I took another step. Thank you. And I just began walking at every step. I just kept saying, thank you. And step after step after step, to the point where I was going, God, are you tired of me saying thank you? And that I was finally saying, I, I, out of joy to say, thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. One after another, until uncontrollably, I'm just bawling by myself on this trail. Tears running down my face. I'm like, I'm a 47-year-old man bawling like a baby walking down this trail. Because God is just crushing me right now with joy. Crushing me right now. I mean, I, I literally, I just felt like, Lord... I'm so joyful and so thankful, but at the same time, I feel the weight of your grace on me so heavy. And I don't know whether it be a moments of joy or moments of pain, but to me, those, I feel like that was probably for me a two-word prayer, thank you, may have been the most authentic prayer I've ever prayed in my life. It's the most authentic thing I've ever prayed, the most real thing I've ever prayed. And I am say that if you struggle with prayer, and you struggle with the discipline of finding time, Mapping out your strategy of prayer. Man, i would tell you, man, stop with all that for a minute. Find yourself in a place of anguish or a place of joy and just talk to Him. Just talk to Him for crying out loud. Even if you can't even get the words to come out and all you can do is cry, like Hannah. Or even if you're just so faithful that all you can do is just keep saying the same thing over and over. I would encourage you not to focus on the technique, but focus more on just the place of your heart. And I love that about Hannah right now. Let's move on. Sorry. I bogged down on that. My bad. Um... Moving on. Look, we got to do a Good night. Um, I think at the end of the day, what, what God's looking for is, He's looking for that that childlike heart. And when I'll just say this when my daughter comes to talk to me, I know when she comes to me with a rehearsed speech of something she wants, like, my proverbial craft detector's flying. I'm like, just get to your point. What do you want? You know, I was like, but I love it when she just has a conversation with me. I love it, like the other day I walked in and on my mirror, she just, my daughter, she's 12 years old. She wrote, you are handsome. I'm like, we're 47 years old. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> looked in the mirror, she's like, thank you. And she just wrote, I'm right. crying. She wrote that she loved me. She's very little smiley faces. You can erase this if you want to. And I looked at that as one of the most beautiful gifts I've been given. what a beautiful gift can I tell you right now that when you wake up in the morning and you see a good sunrise and you say hey dad well done well uh, done love your sunrise this morning he lights up in the same way that I do when my daughter says you're handsome when you can find that moment to say when you're you're reminded of your sin and even I mean immediately even after your sin like one of the things I take joy in is when my kids do something wrong and admit it I take joy it. It's way better than me have to confront them, Charlie, I to them go, uh, I screwed up. I'm so proud of my kids when they do that. You ever had your kids do that? Like, when they, they know that, like, I'm sorry, I blew up, my bad. I shouldn't have done that. shouldn't have said that. I'm like, where did that come from? First of all, that's what I usually think, is like, wow, you must be more like your mom than me. But at the same time, there's this part of my heart, even as a father, in that moment, I'm like, man, I love that. I love the fact you can admit you're wrong the fact that you told me and didn't hide it from me, the fact that you were up front about it, I love that. And prayer can be that. It's that moment, even at the midst of a moment of sin in your life, where you can look at it and hey, Dad, I blew it. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. And before your spirit has to break me, confront me, and before you have to, I have to feel the overwhelming guilt of what I've done, let me just fall on admit, I know what I did, and I'm sorry. And I know I shouldn't do it, and I don't want to do it again. I think God takes joy in I think he takes joy in a broken and contrite heart. I think he takes joy in simple praise. So I would encourage you, maybe this week, your practices, ease up off the techniques, ease up off the formulas, and just begin incredibly authentic with your prayers. Even if it's a nice sunrise, or I'm sorry I did that, guy. Very simple prayers. And Hannah's. it's a very simple prayer. Um, but she does make a ridiculous vow. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Um, it says... Uh, her vow was, um, he says, If you give me a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor ever used on his head. Um, let's skip down to verse 16. She says, Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my, of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And she, May the one who is favored find favor. I love the, the fact she, she uses that lingo. He says, She went away and she ate something. Her, her face was no longer downcast. I think she just believed. There's something about... I mean, she's prayed year after year. I think something about this year feels different to Hannah. Something feels different. Early um, the next morning, they arose and they worshipped for the Lord. Then she went back to her home. And in Ramah, Elkanah lay uh, with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wow. That is such a cool phrase. And I'm not trying to break this down to be crass go beyond semen and eggs right now. Okay, let, let's move beyond that because we're adults here. Let's have a little bit of conversation. Can you see the touch of magic? The t- not, I'm not magic, Holy Spirit. Like, I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not trying to be sensational. But the Lord remembered her. What a cataclysmic thing to happen right now. That how many times Elkanah slept with her? How many times as... You know, semen entered into her body, and nothing's happened. And something special is about to happen right now. And that little phrase, the Lord remembered her, whether you look at it medically, you want to look at it from the standpoint of a miracle, all of it, it's just a beautiful phrase. And And maybe I'm soft at heart, but I just think it's a beautiful phrase. The Lord remembered her. And in that moment, there's this collision between egg and sperm. The Lord remembered her. In that moment life springs forth in her womb. And in that moment, the entire world is about to change when the Lord remembers her. And I get get geeked out about little things, but that phrase just gave me life today. I was like, wow, wow. It's just such a small, few little words, but what happens at that moment when God goes, and I just, man, it's it's very cool. Moving on. Um, It says, so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. Because I asked the Lord for him. The name means heard of God. Now, you know later on what how that name's going to play out. Okay? That name's going to be really important. It's crazy she named him that in light of what's going to happen to him in the next chapter. His name means heard of God. And, and what she's saying is that, God, you heard me. And I'm going to name my son heard of God. And, I, and like heard, like, not like H-E-R-D, H-E-A-R-D. Heard of God is what it means. And what a cool thing. Remember the whole story that's coming up? Speak servant. Speak more if your servant is listening. In his name, heard of God. That's just that's just crazy. It's just crazy the way this scripture plays out. Like, I would look at God and go, did you know that was going to happen? Said, no, of course it, it was going to play out. But I'm like, how did she know the name of that? in spite of what's going to happen here in the next chapter? It's just cool. Um, it says, uh, when the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. All right, Follow me here. So she said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. I don't think I can do that. I just sent my kid off to college, and I about bawled my eyes out. I'm like, oh my word. Hannah, you finally get a kid? You finally get a boy that you prayed for, God gives it, and you're going to give him up? Like, how many years have you begged for this? And what does the tension look like between her and I after that? I'm like, what in the world? I'm like, Hannah, why did you vow that is what I want to say to her? Like, what a dumb thing to promise. But it's beautiful. She just wants a baby. She just wants a boy. And once she has that boy because she wants to be a part of the promise, she knows if I'm just, if I'm just included in the promise, I'll be okay. And she dedicates him. Most likely, any guesses on how old Samuel would have been? When she does this when she wings him huh or two. Two? how about three years old so i wonder what it's like i mean i can't imagine we talk about mary did you know <laughs> you know i can't imagine what it's like for mary looking toward her son wondering what it's going to be like i can't imagine for hannah because i'm telling you she's got to know eli's jacked up his two boys are jacked up and she's about to take her three-year-old boy and give him to some jacked up priest with jacked up sons and I'm like, Hannah, 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 what are you doing here? Hannah. The final facet, he's about three years old when she finally takes him to Eli. Um, says, I'll take and present in before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you. Elkanah, her husband, told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull. I've always wondered, like, I don't look way too deeply into this stuff, but I'm looking at Hannah raising this bull, knowing that this is going to be the sacrifice. She's going to take this someday, this bull that's been born to her, and this bull that's been born to her, and both of them are going to be sacrificed to the Lord. And I just, I, again, I'm looking deeply to think, that to me is just intriguing. Every time she goes out to water that animal, feed that animal, care for that animal, she's just looking at it going, I know you're going to God, and I know you're going It says, uh, stick an ephah, a flower, skin of wine, uh, brought to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. When they slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Watch that tension there. The tension of sacrifice. They slaughter the boy, they give the boy. Slaughter the bull, give the boy. Sorry, screw that up. Slaughter the bull, give the boy, both of them sacrifice to God. It says that she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I pray for this child and the Lord has granted me what I've asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He'll be given over to the Lord. And he worship the Lord there. Now again, if you just reading the story from the very beginning, you, don't, you guys all know where it's going. You would think this was the new king. Oh, this is the king. This is the king that's coming. We've been told the king was coming. This isn't the king. We know that later from what's coming. We know that now. What a tough thing! I can't imagine giving up one of my children to go live. I can't imagine that. And I know of moms that have sent their kids off to the mission field. You know, you know, back in the day, I don't have it anymore. There's a uh, little slip of paper, if I could find it, that I used to put in my daughter's, my daughter's room. I wish, I'll wish i try to remember to bring it here. But it was about the guy who would sue her. And it tells the story of, uh, of the type of man that I want to come after her. And uh, in, in it, it's another guy that wrote it, probably back in 18, late 1800s or so, And he was writing about these guys going off to India and China. That literally, they would give their daughters and they would give their sons. And you guys realize that back then, when the the missionaries would leave to go to places like India and China, that one of the typical things they would do is pack their belongings in a coffin because they never planned on coming home again. Like, we live in a day where you put your kid in ministry or you're going to send your kid overseas. I mean, we got Twitter, we got Facebook, we got Skype, we got a million things. But I look at this at some level, man. When she gave him up, she gave him up, and I wonder what it was like when she would go back to sacrifice in Shiloh year for year. Like I can't imagine that reunion. I know here I, I saw my kid at Christmas break. I'm going to go down in a few weeks for something to college, and I can't wait to see him. Some last week of believe, and I miss him. I can't imagine what it was like for her when once a year she'd get to go see him and what that felt like, and how her heart would leap. I can't can't fathom that. So let's look at a prayer. And we're going we're to look at this prayer through a couple of different lenses, and then we're going to wrap this up. I want to talk about Hannah's song here, or Hannah's prayer. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Who are you thinking of right there? Panaya? yeah. My heart boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. You ever sing that song? Remember that song? We probably sang it here before. Now you know the context of it. Is it kind of, that song is from a woman who's deeply deeply wounded. He says, do not, uh, do not keep talking so proudly. Or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. I need to stop for just a second. And I'm going to read everything I've read. This... This entire song is meant to It's not just Hannah's song. It's one of the most important things you're going to read. In the entire book. And I don't have time to do it justice because I've talked about too many things. This entire song sets up the entire book. It is the it is the landscape of all of Samuel, first and second Samuel. And In fact, if you turn to your Bibles, uh, I think it's so... Oh Lord, second Samuel. Oh Jesus, I remember. Try twenty around there. I want to show you something. This is really kind of cool. 2 Samuel here. Let me find it. Oh, uh, that's not it. Not 20. Where is it? Ah. Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Okay. Toward the very, very end of the book. Okay. Keep in mind. First and 2 Samuel are one book. All right. Now, I just read that line to you that there is no rock like our God. Okay. Remember that one? Look at me at David's song of praise. Look specifically over here at what he does. Look at verse, 30, verse 32. For who, is besi- uh, for who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? Some of you guys may be people who love literature. And some of you guys like, I hated English. I hate literature. I don't care about it. The writer's doing a beautiful thing right now. He will bookend this book with two great songs. He'll bookend it. Like, oh. So if you're reading the whole thing through, you go all the way back and think, Oh, Hannah's song. ah, oh, David's song. And they mirror one another. And everything that's about to unfold in her prayer is what unfolds in the entire book. And this prayer first sets up encounter after encounter. And the other interesting thing is, this prayer is also important. Because look over in the book of Luke, chapter 1. Another really important one. Oh, I've got to hurry. I'm so sorry. I get excited about the stuff and go on tangents. Look at Luke, chapter 1. We're going to end with this. And this is the other thing that made my tail wag. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at 46 through 51. It says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He's been mindful of the humble state of His servant. This is Mary's prayer. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with His arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Are you seeing the parallels between Hannah and Mary's prayer? Very similar here. He says, He's brought down the rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He's, fulfilled, uh, he's filled the hungry with good things. He has set the rich away empty. He's helped the servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham's descendants forever, even as it is to our fathers. Now keeping those things in mind, the beautiful rich literature of, of bookending the entire you know, thing of Samuel with Hannah, David, both songs of praise. And then the, it's going to be carried all the way through to what Mary's going to sing, you know, in this this great, beautiful story. But watch this. Keep in mind, we're going to reference this prayer later on. It says, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My, bo- my mouth boast over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Man, it sounds like David... It says, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There is no rock like your God. Don't keep talking proudly. Let your mouth speak such arrogance. That will be Saul. Follow me? It's going to be Saul. Don't forget that. That's going to be Saul. Moving on. The bows of warriors are broken. Saul. Those who are are, uh, stumbled and armed with strength. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. David. Uh, Those who are full." Hire them, uh, those who are full hire themselves out for food, David. And he says, but those who are hungry will hunger no more. This whole thing is going to unpack this entire book for us. I'm going to read through because i got to read She who was barren has borne seven children, and she who had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. That will be talking about Jesus. He brings down to the grave and raises up. That will be Jesus. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. David, he humbles and he exalts. David, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, and has, that's crazy. He's, it's just David. He seats him with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. David, do you see how this thing foreshadowed in the whole book? It says, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's; upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge at the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Fascinating, you understand it, you lay her prayer alongside this entire book. It's like, what? She's just foreshadowing the entire thing. But watch this. There's a difference between Hannah and Mary. What's the difference? between Hannah and Mary the mother of Jesus. Tell me the the fundamental easy difference. Huh? One was just barren. One's barren? One's a virgin. There's another barren woman. There's another barren woman in Luke. Who is it? Now let's go back to Luke real quick and this is the part that makes my tail wag. I'm using Mark Christian's terminology. Go back to Luke 1. So, a barren woman. Oh, guys, I'm going to get geeked out on this, and you may not care, but I'm about to get goosebumps. I'm sorry. A barren woman in Luke 1. Okay? Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready, hurried to the, uh, the town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's t- uh, home, greeted Elizabeth. Uh, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. Elizabeth filled with joy. We know the story of Elizabeth that she had a woman. So Elizabeth has a baby, right? Who is that baby? John. John. What's John's whole job? Huh? Yeah, you're saying it. Yeah. Prepare the way. Prepare the way for the coming, what? the coming what? Coming king. So a barren woman has a baby to prepare the way for the coming king. Now let's look at Hannah. Barren woman has a baby to prepare the way for what? To become a king. Woo, goosebumps. That's just cool, man. That's just cool. That is rich. The crazy thing here is that the Lord had told them before that he was going to give them a king. He was going to give them a king. But there's a problem that happens. And I think that problem shows up in 1 Samuel 8. We'll look ahead a little bit. Look at 1 Samuel 8 real quick. The Lord had told him over and over. Um, in Genesis 17, I'm going to read these real quick before we wrap up. Let me find this one. I'm going to read some text to you real quick. And you guys hang out, if you don't want to hang out, in, in uh, chapter 8 real quick. Uh, Genesis 17, you're welcome to come with me. Genesis 17, 6. He says, "I will make you fruitful. I'll make you. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants for all generations to come." Moving on, we're going to look also at um, verse sixteen of Genesis seventeen. Um, it says, "I will bless her, and surely give you a son of her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her." Um, again, it goes. God's saying that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for you. Uh, look also, if you want to write this down, Genesis 35. I'm just going to look at a few of these. Because I want you to see that the concept of having a king is not a foreign concept. It's not like they didn't realize this was going to take place. Oh, my hand's not turning fast enough. and I've got to get you guys out of here in a second. Genesis 35. Uh, where's it at? 35, verse 11. Uh, it states again, where's that? And God said to them, I'm the God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. So, over and over, God's told them, I'm going to give you a king. A kings are going to come from you. Here's the problem that Israel's going to have. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. So, all the, Israels, all the elders of Israel gathered together, verse 4. They came to Samuel and Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. We'll talk about Samuel as a dad later on. Now, a point. You see the difference? Now appoint a king to lead us. And therein has been a lot of problem in 1 Samuel. And the problem in our own lives is when we try to take control of God's plan. And even, even John the Baptist you know, has that fleeting moment wondering, are you, are you, who do you say you are? You're really him, right? And John submits and says, man, I'm, I'm going to decrease so he can increase. You have a barren woman having a baby that prepares the way for the king. Samuel is living the same thing. But unfortunately, the king is delivered to Mary and to John the Baptist and to Elizabeth. And unfortunately for Samuel, the king is demanded. And uh, it's a messy, messy thing. It's a messy thing when we demand a king instead of waiting for God to provide it. And man, I can't tell you how many times in my life instead of waiting for God to provide I've tried to make things happen. I've tried to force things to happen. Sometimes I've sensed that maybe I should wait on a conversation, but I open my big mouth and I just start talking instead of waiting for God to open the door. Sometimes financially, instead of being patient and waiting, I'm just going to go do this right now. And man, I bear the pain of that. And This will be the issue of Israel, is that they didn't wait on what God said He was going to do. They commanded it. You know, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then finally they moved to the point and they said, well, God, we're going to force your hand. Give us a king now. And God says, I'll give you a king. not the one I had planned. And it's going to hurt. And it does. Because anytime we put a king ahead of the king to guide has planned, it always involves pain. All right. Next week, Fatty Lie. Next week, you've got to hear the story. I'm not just picking on him. That's literally what they call him. And you've got to hear the story of how jacked up this guy is. Fascinating story. I think we even get to talk about some bizarre things that happened in the Ark of the Covenant next week. Where... God gives them tumors in their private parts, which is just hilarious. You're going to love it next week. It's awesome. Can't wait. See you guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.